So, the practice of Dharma is often described as a path leading us out of confusion and fear towards more understanding, peace and happiness. And on this path, it is inevitable that we have to leave behind familiar, well-known areas and move into new uh, and unknown spaces and landscapes towards new horizons. In one way, this is very fascinating and gratifying, but it can also be unsettling and scary when at times all certainties suddenly become questionable and when our system has to get used to new ways of looking, thinking and experiencing. Dharma practice, if it is to really transform us, is again and again a de departure into the unknown, into that what we do, do not yet know, into that which still lies beyond our present possibilities. And of course, there is much support available on our path. We have access to Dharma lectures, we practice, we read books, we exchange with other practitioners, and gradually we deepen our understanding of what this path is actually about and in which direction to go. And yet, it is inevitable that we sometimes encounter obstacles, challenges and in some cases real crises on this path. Ups and downs are a natural part of Dharma practice, as I'm sure all of you know by now. And there are times of great inspiration and determination and there are times of frustration, of boredom, of fear, of doubt. These, there are times where where everything seems very clear and easy. And there are times where we find ourselves totally caught up in old patterns or where we feel stuck. This is completely normal and it is good to remind ourselves that the path does not always follow a smooth and linear trajectory, but that it does include all these experiences of doubt or resistance at times. Yet the question is, how do we deal with such challenges? How do we deal with these difficult phases on our path when we feel like we have lost our inspiration or when we face challenges? What makes us not simply give up in such difficult moments? What keeps us going? This is where the quality of faith, trust, or confidence uh, comes in that I would like to talk about tonight. Faith is a very important and fundamental quality of mind that we need in order to even set out on the path and then to keep going. Faith in this path, faith in the Dharma, faith in our own abilities and in our potential to grow. In Pali, the ancient Indian language, the word for faith is sata. We could also speak of confidence or trust. I find it interesting that this word sata etymologically has a connection to the word 
heart. It is related to the Proto-Indo-Iranian word kradha, don't ask me how to pronounce that, and it's also related to the Latin word credo, which literally means to place or lay your heart on something. So we could say it is about relying on something with our heart. So Sada is not about holding on to some intellectual beliefs or dogmas. It is not a belief in some conceptual framework or a theory. Rather, it is a kind of heart knowledge, uh, a felt sense that I can rely or depend on some things or some people, a sense of, that there is something to be trusted. It is said that Sata has two functions. First of all, Sada clears the mind of all the swirling thoughts of fear or doubt. And secondly, it enables us to set out on the path. It is Sada that enables us to actually engage with the teachings and practices of the Dharma. And it helps us not to give up when we experience what might seem like setbacks or disappointments. When Sada is there, the mind feels clear and we feel certainty, inspiration, enthusiasm and a commitment to practice. Sada gives us the feeling that we are heading in the right direction and that makes us calm, clear and joyful inside. And it gives us the energy to tackle tasks instead of getting lost in doubt and uncertainty. Sada is on one hand a quality that we already bring with us to varying degrees. Some people have more of it, others less. And on the other hand, like all mental qualities, it can be developed. It's a quality that we can and want to cultivate consciously on this path. Now, sometimes people express that they find it difficult to trust that they have a, a lot of doubts and skeptical thoughts. But actually, all of us must have at least a minimum of trust or faith, because we wouldn't be able to live and to act in this world. For example, with every step, I unconsciously trust that the earth carries me, um, that it is stable. If you've ever experienced an earthquake, then you know how frightening it can be when this basic assumption is literally shattered and you realize how much you just relied on the stability of the earth. But I also trust that an exhalation will be followed by an inhalation, that water flows downhill and that the sun will rise again tomorrow morning. I trust that plants grow, that trains run, and that other people generally behave within a certain range of convention and decency. <laughs> trust, faith, confidence is a prerequisite for all our actions, for our entire being, and for living together in relationships and in society. If we had no trust at all, we would be totally paralyzed, totally incapable 
of taking even one step because we would be overwhelmed by millions of doubtful and skeptical thoughts. It is trust that calms these paralyzing thoughts and that enables us to take action and to do something. In the tradition, we find a distinction of three stages of the development of trust or faith. And the initial stage is called bright faith. This is the enthusiasm that many people feel when they first encounter the Dharma, whether through a book or a person or a seminar, whatever, this feeling of inspiration, of being touched and moved. There is also a feeling of confidence that arises, confidence about a way of being that could be possible for us, a sense of possibility and potential. Although we might not yet have a deep understanding of the teachings, the methods or the forms, we do feel inspired to engage with them and maybe also to share our discovery with other people, sometimes even with a missionary zeal. This bright faith is wonderful because it motivates us to get involved with and to open to something that is new and unknown. But it is also limited in that it is an inspiration that we can easily lose again if at some point we perhaps realize that this teacher that we admired so much is maybe not free of mistakes or limits. When we hear of a teacher who has acted in unskillful ways, this can be tremendously disappointing and uh, even bring us away from the Dharma. In short, bright faith is not yet very stable. It's not based on our own experience, but it depends on rather superficial characteristics that attract us. So we may be projecting all kinds of hopes and expectations on teachers or methods. And this is not good or bad in itself. It's just a phase we're going through. There are charismatic teachers who are very good at inspiring this kind of faith in people. But we all come to the point one day where we realize that we have to find out for ourselves what is true and what is not, that we have to grow up and cannot just parrot what other people tell us. This brings us to the second stage of faith, verified faith. After listening to and engaging with the teachings for a while, we have to contemplate them and verify them in our own experience. And this is crucial, as the Buddha pointed out, that we not just accept a teaching based on what we've heard or read, but that we should strive to know for ourselves. As he famously said in the Kalama Sutta that probably many of you know, Kalamas do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. 
But when kalamas, you know for yourselves, these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censored by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves, these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should live in accordance with them. So the encouragement and the invitation here is to apply the teachings and the instructions to our own mind, what we've been doing over this week, to make our own observations based on our own experiences and to come to a judgment that is based on a wise discernment between that which is wholesome and that which is not wholesome. The more we recognize, yes, the teachings accord with my own experience and they are leading in the direction of wholesomeness, the more stable our faith becomes. It is so empowering and encouraging to see the teachings confirmed in our own experience. And I truly hope that all of you have had such experience that have fed your faith Verified faith is less exuberant than bright faith, but it is much more reliable and sustainable because it is now rooted in our own experiential knowledge. Once I have seen in my own mind how reactivity creates suffering, no charismatic teacher will be able anymore to dissuade me from this knowledge. Our sense of in confidence increases a lot and we become more independent from external authorities. But even then, it may still be that there are doubts in the mind whether the teachings of Nibbana, of awakening, are really true, whether this is actually possible. The knowledge that awakening is possible is the third form of faith. It is called unshakable faith or certainty, and it refers to the certainty that comes from a deep experience when we get a first taste of liberation. At this point, there is unshakable un certainty and confidence in the mind that awakening is a possibility. Even if the mind is not yet completely free and will, of course, fall back into habitual patterns, from this point on, there is no doubt regarding our potential. So, faith is really an important aspect and foundation of the practice, and it evolves gradually from bright faith to this inner certainty. Another way to understand faith, the role and function of faith, is if we look at it as one of the so-called five spiritual faculties, the indriyas. The indriyas need to be developed in our practice if we want to tame and cultivate this mind, this citta. So sada is the first of these five faculties, which are sada, faith, then energy or persistence, mindfulness, collectedness, and wisdom. 
the importance of these five faculties lies in their power to keep unwholesome tendencies at bay, to appease them. Often we act under the influence of more or less conscious impulses and habits. We are driven by unwholesome tendencies like anger or desire or fear. And a big part of Dharma practice, as you know, is that we stop feeding those tendencies and intentionally cultivate the wholesome tendencies. This implies that we have to stop when we notice unwholesome impulses arising and learn to act with more mindfulness and heedfulness. Sorry, I think I just need to adjust that. And this is exactly where the five spiritual faculties come into play. The word Indriya comes from the Pali word Inda, which means ruler. So the spiritual faculties are those mind factors that enable us to gain mastery with regard to our mind. This may sound a little bit negative at first, this idea that I should master or control my mind. But it is simply this fact that we are faced with a choice. Do I allow the mind to be under the sway of old destructive patterns? Or do I make a conscious effort to steer my actions in a wholesome direction with the help of such factors as faith or energy? For example, imagine that you are afraid of something, even if you know very well that this something, it could be a retreat or a change of your life circumstances, whatever, would actually be helpful for you, wholesome, and that actually you want to do it. But there is this fear. If there is enough faith and confidence, it will help you not to get stuck in the fear but to go forward anyway. It is in this sense we can say that the spiritual faculties help us to become more poised in dealing with the unwholesome and destructive habits of the mind. Together, they stand for the inner strength that we really need in order to counteract the destructive pattern that are so strong and powerful. So we need them, all of them. And even more, we need them to be in a certain balance in order for the practice to unfold. Specifically, um, there has to be a balance between faith on the one hand and wisdom on the other, between energy on the one hand and collectedness on the other. Faith without wisdom, as you can imagine, can quickly turn into blind faith, into naivety, lacking the ability to, to discern wisely where faith is actually appropriate and where not. Wisdom without faith, on the other hand, can become superficial and brainy, lacking the ability to open ourselves on the heart level. And then energy without collectedness can lead to restlessness, ungroundedness, while Collectedness without energy can lead to dullness. And it is part of the learning on this path that we get better at recognizing which faculties are well developed and available and which ones not and 
how to make adjustments and cultivate certain indriyas. The decisive role here is played by mindfulness. The middle one of these five indriyas, because mindfulness, to use this traditional image, is like a charioteer guiding four horses, faith, energy, uh, collectedness and wisdom. And mindfulness will recognize what is needed and which faculty would profit from some special cultivation. Interestingly, mindfulness itself doesn't need to be balanced. It is a quality of which we can never have too much. Yeah. <laughs> so these indriyas cooperate with each other, supporting each other and propelling us on our path. So fa uh, faith, trust is really important, very positive, and yet it is not necessarily easy for all of us, especially in challenging times. The question is, why? What prevents sada? What can get in its way? And there are several things, several factors that can ga get in the way of sada that can prevent us from trustingly opening ourselves to life, to dharma, from really engaging with it. Fear, for example, mistrust, cynicism, doubt, and so on. We live in an age that seems to favor mistrust over trust, in an age of fake news and unprecedented manipulation on grand scale, and in an age in which I feel that fears are consciously um, stoked and politically exploited. Especially in such an environment, it feels important to remember the quality of faith and to explore for ourselves where we personally can access this quality and nourish it. Of course, one big obstacle for faith and trust are biographical experiences that have undermined our trust. Psychologically, the development of trust begins in the earliest childhood with the experience of loving and dependable care with the experience that as babies we were held and fed and comforted in moments of fear or stress by our caregivers. These are pre-linguistic, pre-verbal experiences that lay the foundation for a deep trust in life itself. And if this care was, for whatever reason, somehow lacking or not enough, it can lead to deep feelings of uncertainty, of mistrust, of fear. And also later experiences in life where we were cheated, disappointed, hurt or mistreated can make us super cautious with regard to relationships. If we have experienced that other people have treated us badly or unfair, then bitterness and cynicism can easily arise in the mind. And this is a very understandable reaction, this attempt to protect oneself from further injuries. This reaction of protecting ourselves, of being on guard, can manifest in our general way of dealing with experiences. 
this attempt not to feel unpleasant experiences, to turn away from them and to avoid them. And Akinjano spoke about this yesterday evening beautifully, so I don't have to say much about this dissociative tendency of the mind. The sad thing or the problematic thing is that precisely this avoidance of contact, this pattern of moving away to withdraw from experience actually leads to an even greater decrease of our trust. When we prefer to stay at a safe distance from life in, um, and if we don't dare to truly live our life, we start to turn to our thinking mind and hope that thinking about life will somehow help us to cope with life. And in this way, we easily get lost in our thought world. So the avoidance of contact, this dissociation, can be a result of little trust-building experience and in turn it can lead to even less trust, a vicious circle. And that's why this practice of being embodied, of being in touch with the body is so important. Besides such biographical experiences, also challenges or difficult experiences that arise on our path can be a reason for a lack of trust. When in our meditation, pain, fear or un other unpleasant experiences arise, this can be very unsettling and bring up a lot of doubt or a feeling of doing it wrong or not being capable. This is simply due to a lack of information or a wrong understanding. We are so quick to associate unpleasant Vedana with indicating that something is wrong with us. But actually, it is quite common for meditators to experience pain, discomfort or fear at times. Of course, sometimes there is something that can be done to find relief. But just knowing that su such experiences are quite common and normal and to be expected can help to normalize them. So it's not the experiences themselves that undermine our trust and faith, but unrealistic ideas or expectations, sometimes also high ambitions or striving. Sometimes practitioners practice so intensely that at some point they get totally frustrated and might even give up because the hoped-for results simply didn't show and they think they failed. For instance, if we have taken unpaid vacation, I know someone, and expect that it, you know, the decisive breakthrough, must happen during this time. <laughs> or... If you have had that special meditation experience, have you ever tried to repeat it? <laughs> it will be a very frustrating project <laughs> and create nothing but disappointment. I can tell you, I've wasted several years trying to go to a certain experience. <laughs> yeah, perhaps not complete. <laughs> Perhaps not completely wasted because I learned something <laughs> in this process. So. 
so pushing ourselves and trying to force inner development will only lead to frustration and disappointment. Really, the practice requires that we let go of all these ideas and expectations and understand that the process unfolds according to the complex interplay of causes and conditions and not according to our wants and wishes. The only thing that we can do is keep planting and watering the wholesome seeds and then let things unfold. And this part requires a lot of trust, a lot of letting go, which is often not easy. Another obstacle, which is somewhat related, is to measure and compare ourselves with others. Measuring one's own progress against some fixed ideas about progress in meditation or comparing with other people is the most direct pathway to hell. <laughs> to become totally frustrated. You know, who can sit the longest in the evenings? Who is the first one to be in the meditation hall in the morning? Who can sit very still? Who walks most slowly? So covertly we check what, what the others are doing, how they are doing it, and then we make an assessment based on this information, not realizing how futile this is. On one of my three months courses, I started to wake up more and more early and then used to go sit before the wake-up bell. And I came to know the other regular early birds. It was often a similar group of yogis. But there was one woman who somehow triggered me because she always was already there when... <laughs> when I came, no matter how early I got to the meditation hall. 4 a.m., 3.30 a.m., there she was. <laughs> and, and my mind began to compare myself with her. Oh, she must be a really good meditator. Probably the, the, the teachers like her a lot. Oh, she must have a very deep samadhi. All kinds of useless thoughts. Once I even got up extra early to be there around 3 a.m. <laughs> and guess what? Who was sitting there, sitting <laughs> like a Buddha? <laughs> of course, her. <laughs> now, several years later, we met at another retreat and I asked her, weren't you the one who always was up so early? And she said, Oh, well, yes, but you know, I usually went to bed at nine because I was so tired. <laughs> I just saw my whole story falling apart. I saw how absurd and silly it was. All my thoughts and comparisons and feelings of not being as good as her were all just fabrications of my own mind. So the comparing mind can be the source of totally unnecessary suffering. It's helpful if we remind ourselves that precise measurements of our progress are not possible and also not very meaningful. The reason is that we are often not in the pos position to actually notice the progress we're making because the changes are happening so slowly and gradually 
that we only notice them in retrospect. Maybe even years later, do you know that? Sometimes years later, looking back, we notice that maybe a certain reactivity that used to be very strong has just disappeared. It's not there anymore. There is this wonderful image. I'm not sure whether I heard it from Rebecca Bradshaw, that our practice is like walking through dense fog. As we walk the path, slowly, slowly our clothes are getting humid and after quite some time we notice that they have become all wet. So we just keep walking and let the practice do its work until the water of Dharma has soaked and permeated our whole being. So we have emotional patterns of fear, of mistrust, we have unrealistic ideas about meditation, comparing mind that can get in the way of sada. Another aspect that I'd like to mention is the attachment to underlying concepts and views that can also become an obstacle. Many people hold self-views, well, actually all people, I guess, <laughs> that are not very empowering, not encouraging them to give themselves fully to this practice and to have faith in the potential and vision of this path. It could be a self-view of being weak, of being undisciplined, of being emotionally flat or not so bright or not concentrated enough. There are many, many ways in which we keep ourselves imprisoned in a certain view and don't trust that there is something lying beyond our present experience or sense of self. It can come as a surprise to practitioners when they, for instance, start to discover a feeling of inner strength, a strength that may feel unfamiliar, and they need to learn to integrate this also into their sense of who they are, to recognize, I am not just a weak person, I can also access considerable strength and determination in me. So our self-view can and should become more fluid and more expansive. Or we have views or opinions in terms of what is possible, in terms of meditative experience and liberation. And this too can limit our experience and our willingness to, experience, to acknowledge experiences. Because, you know, it does happen sometimes that people have all kinds of experiences that don't fit into their worldview. And if we are too attached to a view that does not allow for certain experiences, we will likely ignore or denigrate them, which can limit us on our path. If we deny, if we don't want to see what is there for us in our experience, we artificially shut something out of our world and of our practice. But in the long run, our practice has to become so inclusive that it embraces all our experiences, all aspects of our life. So how about if we would just postpone some of our um, opinions or uh, views and to hold them lightly 
and to just open to what we actually and honestly sense and feel. So faith and trust are often not easy for us and it's good if we notice the obstacles that can get in the way. And yet faith is such an important quality, a quality that when it is strong can bring forth incredible dedication and determination and great accomplishments. For me, one example of the enormous power of faith is the famous yogini and nun in the Tibetan tradition, Tenzin Pamo, or better with her honorary title, Jetsun Ma Tenzin Pamo. Do you know her? Yeah. Which I would like to mention here briefly as an example of great faith. So Tenzin Pamo describes how early in her life a spontaneous faith in the Dharma arose in her. She was born in England during the Second World War. And of course, she didn't know about Buddhism when she was a child. But even at a very early age, she had a deep curiosity and a question about how it was able to attain perfection as a human being. She studied different religions, Christianity and Judaism. She read the Quran at the age of 13 and discovered Buddhism at the age of 18. Here she suddenly found something that corresponded with her deep convictions and felt a strong resonance with these teachings. She was so enthusiastic about this discovery that she began to give away all her clothes and to wear a yellow costume, a sort of Greek tunic, she says, until she met other Buddhists and realized that they were wearing perfectly normal clothes. (laughs) Here one could say that this was probably still a kind of bright faith, a great inspiration. After she had studied the Buddhist teachings for a while, she traveled to India at the age of 20 to work in a new school for Tibetan lamas. And she writes, One day we received a letter about Tibetan handmade paper, which some community was producing. They wanted to know if we could find a market for it. The letter was signed Kamtrul Rinpoche. As soon as I read this name, faith spontaneously arose, as they say in the books. The next day I asked Freda Bedi, so the woman who founded this uh, school, who Kamtrol Rinpoche was. She replied, he is a high Drukpa Kaju Lama. In fact, he's the Lama we were waiting for. Tenzin Pamo knew immediately that she wanted to take refuge with this teacher. But when he arrived, she was so excited and panicking that she kind of crawled on all fours into the room to him and was too terrified to look at him. She writes, I had no idea what he was like. I'd never even seen a photograph. Was he old? Was he young? Was he fat? Was he thin? I had no idea. All I saw was the bottom of his robe and his brown shoes. I prostrated to these brown shoes and then sat down. And then when she finally dared to look at him, she writes, as I looked at him, 
it seemed as if two things were happening simultaneously. There was a sense of recognition, like meeting an old friend uh, you haven't seen for a long time. At the same time, it was as if the very deepest thing inside me had suddenly taken on an external form. We get a sense of how deep the faith that arose in Tenzin Pamo must, must have been, also because this encounter was the beginning of her intensive practice. She ordained under very difficult circumstances as a nun in a monastery, despite being discriminated in many ways, because she was the only nun among all the nun monks. And shortly afterwards, she moved into a Himalayan cave at about 12,000 feet above sea level for 12 years to, in order to practice in complete seclusion in spite of the very sparse food, the icy temperatures and the humidity and the fact that she was completely cut off from the next settlement by the snow during six months of the year. And it's fascinating. When you read her own account, it sounds like the most normal thing in the world for a young woman in her 20s to retire alone for 12 years and to live more or less on self-grown potatoes, turnips and just very few supplies. At first, the Tibetans in the area tried to stop her from doing it and warned her that she might be robbed or raped. She just replied by saying, by the time these men up, are up here, they will be too exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Then I will invite them to sit down and have a cup of tea. <laughs> Maybe you get a sense of her confidence and determination. Looking back, she says that this has been an exceptionally happy and fruitful time for her. Today, she's the director of a nunnery that she founded and is highly revered and respected for her extraordinary realization, but also for her energy and perseverance with which she works for nuns. And all this, her whole life, began with the fact that there was a young woman who took the burning questions in her heart seriously and who had a deep faith that guided her on her way and that enabled her to practice with all her heart. So faith is the quality that gives us the courage and energy to walk the path, to try out things and to take risks. And I'm sure we all have felt sada at times, perhaps in a milder form than but we all know this quality, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. I think if we look back on our path, we can easily identify those moments when we intuitively knew, oh, that interests me. Oh, I want to know more about that. I'm somehow drawn to it. Sada is like an inner compass that we learn to follow a felt sense of what is trustworthy and good and true. And when sada is there, when we know what we want, what seems desirable to us in our life, 
then this gives us the energy and the determination to actually move in this direction. The question is then, how can we nurture and cultivate sadha? Like all mental factors, it is something that we can uh, nourish, it can increase through our efforts. And if we realize that maybe this is something we are lacking, we can um, intend to walk in this direction. Traditionally, it is said that for sada to arise, there must be something trustworthy. We must come across something that seems trustworthy to us, something that somehow touches and opens us. Maybe we happen to meet a person or read a book or so that arouses this sense of faith and trust in us. But things don't always have to be big and extraordinary. You know, we don't always have to meet Kamtrul Rinpoche in person. It could be just something smaller, but then it's more, do we have the eyes and the heart to actually recognize that which is trustworthy? And there is so much around us. We have seen that negative experiences lead to a loss of confidence, but the other way around too, the experiences of goodness, of love, of reliability, support, faith and trust. And if we are sensitive and attentive to the positive qualities in ourselves, in other people, then trust will naturally grow. I had a very important personal experience in this regard many years ago when I sat the retreat at Spirit Rock. In my memory, it is the wettest retreat I ever sat because it rained almost all month long, the whole February, and also because I cried a lot and mourned for someone. So it was hard, it was difficult, and I really went through a veil of tears. And in addition, I was not prepared for this cold and wet weather and was feeling terribly cold all the time. Everything felt damp and cold inside and outside. So I went to ask if I could go to town to buy some warm underwear. And in the next interview with Guy Armstrong, he took out a paper bag and said, this is for you, with best regards from Sally, his wife. These are two leggings you can use while you're here. I remember bursting into tears because I was so touched by this kindness and care of my teachers. I really hadn't expected something like that. And in the next interview with Carol, she took out another paper bag with another pair of leggings in them. And later she brought me a blanket from her room also to keep me warm. That was such an important lesson for me in a period of much grief and sadness, to perceive this goodness so consciously. I remember sitting outside in a moment where actually the rain had stopped and realizing, wow, there are truly good people in this world. There is true goodness in this world. This was an important and fundamental correction of a very distorted view that I had unconsciously carried around with me 
And I realized then how blind I had often been to all the goodness around me. Because somewhere deep inside me, I didn't fully believe that there was something that was truly good. It was an experience that really supported a sense of faith and trust. And what was also important there was that I felt a clear inner sense of trustworthiness, a felt sense, because of course there are many things uh, in this world that are not trustworthy and we need to distinguish between that which is trustworthy and that which is not. But if we listen to our body and mind, we will get better at recognizing those things or people that are trustworthy. We develop the sensitivity for it. So the question is, can I see, recognize and acknowledge something that is trustworthy? Can I let it in? In times of agitation or fear, it can be so helpful to really seek something where you feel trust. It could be something very basic, just the feeling of the feet on the ground, the movement of the body breathing. It could also be our capacity to just be aware of whatever is happening, that we see whatever arises in my mind, I can be aware of it. This can become our refuge, something we learn to trust. I hope it is clear that this is not about naive, positive thinking, where we simply ignore what is not good and pretend that there are no problems in the world, but about the ability to have a balanced view of things that sees both the positive, the beautiful, and the difficult, the negative. Every day, around the world, billions of people act in kind, caring, generous ways. The colleague who agrees to fill in for me when I'm sick, the friend who has her school project in Nepal, and so on. Despite all our concerns about the state of the world, what would the world would look like if people did not do so much good every day? We can have faith in goodness, in kindness, in wisdom, and all the other beautiful qualities of the mind that are part of our humanness. We can also, and this is a traditional way of speaking about faith, of course have faith in the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, because they are considered to be the deepest and most trustworthy of all. For instance, my experience with Carol and Guy was in a way also feeding my faith in the Sangha. They embodied kindness and compassion for me in this moment. So when the members of a Sangha act in skillful ways, they become true objects of refuge. They convey something through their way of being and acting. We also experience Sangha here in this retreat context and we feel the support that comes. And we too, we become trustworthy for others by acting by, with care, with kindness. 
Sangha can also refer to those who are much further on the path, the enlightened ones. Such beings embody our own potential for us. They have crossed over to the other shore and they show us through their example, look, I was able and therefore you too are able. Then faith in the Dharma has to do with faith in the teachings. It grows through our engagement with the teachings, through applying them to our own experience. The more we find that our experience confirms what we have heard, and the more we recognize that the teachings serve the wholesome, the more we see them as trustworthy and we develop faith. Dharma can also be understood in a more general sense, not just as the Buddha's teachings, but in a much deeper or transcendent sense as the deepest dimension of our being, as the true, empty nature of all phenomena, the deepest peace, the suchness. Here, too, we can take refuge. Faith in the Buddha can also have different meanings. On a concrete level, the Buddha could be understood as a historical person who was very wise and woke up. So when we go for refuge in Buddha, we might imagine that we in a way connect with this being and find inspiration in what he taught. But faith in the Buddha could also refer to something much, much deeper when he stands for our for liberation itself, for the possibility of our own mind to wake up from confusion and suffering. Understood in this way, faith in Buddha ultimately means that we find faith in our own potential, that we go for refuge in the possibility of our own heart-mind to wake up. Thus, Faith in Buddha can mean that we trust in our ability to be awake and aware. That we trust our ability to discern what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. That we trust our good intentions. That we trust our sincere and legitimate wish to find happiness. And then... Once we have found that which is trustworthy for us, it's important that we also consciously cultivate the faith if we want to grow. Faith and trust need to be tended to, cultivated, like seedlings. We can actively seek out that which nourishes our faith, people, teachings, activities, and reduce or limit that which does not inspire and encourage us. We can expose ourselves to wholesome influences intentionally, a bit like sunflowers, you know, turning towards the sunlight, welcoming and absorbing all the support that is available. We can also, if we wish, engage in the practice of going for refuge as it is being done traditionally. For me, going for refuge has really nothing to do with a confession or so, with being a, a good Buddhist, but it is a way of aligning myself with that which is most trustworthy for me, 
this inner sense that we all can access when we learn to listen patiently. So it is a practice to learn to trust, to have faith in our path, something that we can and need to cultivate. All along the way, faith supports us. It gives us the patience and inspiration to do the practice. And in the crucial moments, faith allows us to let go into the unknown. The more we trust, the more we find that this trust is confirmed by our own experience and that indeed it becomes our guide on the path of waking up. I would like to read you a few lines from a letter from Rilke to a young poet, to Mr. Kapush. Always trust yourself and your own feeling as opposed to argumentation, discussions or introductions of that sort. If it turns out that you are wrong, then the natural growth of your inner life will eventually guide you to other insights. Allow your judgments their own silent, undisturbed development which, like all progress, must come from deep within and cannot be forced or hastened. Everything is gestation and then birthing. Ripening like the tree, which does not force its sap and stands confident in the storms of spring, without the fear that after them may come no summer. It does come, but it comes only to the patient who are there as though eternity lay before them, so unconcernedly still and wide. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So we have a walking period for half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.